Give me everything you got. Play fast, play hard. Let's beat these boys tonight in their house. It's party time. It's party time. Let's go. You are listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Brand Duffy. That's right, another week, and it just so happens to be one of my favorite weeks on the calendar as the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast continues. I'm Fran Duffy, and I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 54. At the top of this week's show, we've got Chalk Talk, where I chat with NFL Draft insider Tony Pauline. Obviously, this is the week that Tony has been building up to for months, and I want to get you guys a bit of his backstory, and I also want to show you a little peek behind the curtain at the flow of information throughout this process, because it's definitely different than how you may imagine it from the outside looking in. After my talk with Tony, I catch up with Eagles linebacker Jordan Hicks in two technique, where this week we talk about the dance that happens between linebackers and running backs in man coverage and how that's tied to a green dog blitz. It was a really interesting conversation with Jordan. Then we wrap it up like we do every week with Saturday Scouting, where we look at Eagles running back Kenyon Barner coming out of Oregon in 2013. But before we get to the rest of this show... I have not had a chance on this podcast to talk about the Eagles' huge trade a week ago that got them up to number two overall. To me, it was a no-brainer, an outstanding move by the Eagles' front office and the Eagles' decision-makers. You've got seven picks this year still to work with. You've got eight next year, so you did not mortgage the future, quote-unquote. It was a huge trade to get you up into that spot. It's not often that you're up in that position to be able to draft a quarterback that level of prospect, and that's what they're going to be in position to do on Thursday night, you saw a year ago how hard it would be to potentially move up. And you saw all the, all the different rumors, everything that was tossed around, all the different scenarios with the Eagles possibly moving up to get Chip Kelly, Marcus Mariota. Well, now you have that opportunity to move up, draft a guy in the top two. It's so rare that you're able to be in that position. The Eagles have that chance now. They did such a great job of making sure that all their bases were covered. You signed Sam Bradford back for two years to make sure, you know, before this was even in the realm of possibility, to make sure that you're ready to compete now and in 2017. I really just love this move all around. Really, really excited to see who the, the Eagles are able to bring in on Thursday night. But let's get to the rest of the show. I caught up with Tony Pauline to talk about the task of transitioning from pre-draft process all the way up until this week and everything that goes into it. It's a really, really interesting conversation with Tony, and I think you're going to like his backstory. Let's get to that now in Chalk Talk. Let's get down to business. It's time for Chalk Talk. Very excited to be joined inside the studio by NFL Draft Insider Tony Pauline. And Tony, uh, is the week of the draft. And obviously everybody wants to know what is the latest buzz around the entire league, who's taking who, who's going to fall, who's going to be the early surprise picks. We're not going to talk about any of that in this segment. Uh, So I'm sorry for those of you that are disappointed by that. But I thought it would be interesting, and you've been covering the draft for such a long time, I thought it would be interesting to get your background, your origin story about really the, the coverage of the NFL draft. Because when you started... The draft coverage, as it is today, was nothing compared to what it was back then. Uh, I figured I'd just try and pick your brain and really kind of share the story with everybody as to how you helped to get the, the coverage started. Absolutely. In fact, when I started, it was basically Mel Kuyper on ESPN and Joel Buxbaum, the great Joel Buxbaum, through his uh, Pro Football Weekly book. That was basically it. And, you know, again, when I started, there was no Internet. <laughs> there was no uh, Twitter. There was no, you know, none of that stuff. 
There was no instantaneous news. So basically, along the way, I had to kind of break barriers and kind of raise the bar and try and stay ahead of the curve to make my mark, which I think I did a pretty good job of. Yeah, I, I would say that that's a fair statement. Um, all right, well, let, let's take it back. So uh, first, we'll kind of take it through the, through the NFL draft calendar. So take us through the season. And what is, what is a, a week in the life of Tony Pauline, NFL Draft Insider, like uh, starting on, we'll say, Sunday, day after a game? Uh, what, what is the, the week like for Tony Pauline? Well, it depends on the time of year. I, I mean, I think the best way to, st- to start or the place to start is what happens after this year's draft is over. After okay. this year's there draft is over, I take about two weeks off. And you get to the middle part of May, and I'll actually start re-watching the film from 2015. I start with the smaller conferences first, the MAC, the Sun Belt, uh, Conference USA, to start to get to uh, acquainted with the guys who will impact not only the next year's draft, which would be the 2017 draft, but future drafts as well. So I start taking notes on them because I like to have an entire body of work. So really, through the summer, I am watching, re-watching the 2015 film and I'm usually watching three to four, if not more, games per day, usually six to seven days a week. You get into, uh, you get into the season. Obviously, I used to, early on, I used to go to games to scout the games live because I would get a lot of information. Now I'm at the point where it's actually better to sit there and watch 30 games on a Saturday, basically from 12 noon till 11.30 at night, to take notes and then you know, figure, talk to people throughout the day who's rising up draft boards, who's falling down draft boards. Obviously, it's all dynamic because a guy could look great for three weeks and he looks terrible. So, you know, getting back to what's Sunday like, you know, Sunday's usually spent writing notes, talking to people on the phone, getting updated on injuries, getting updated on, you know, what may have happened uh, Saturday could impact down the road. Is the guy going to play? Is the guy out for the season? You know, what other people think, not just to steal their opinions, but to reinforce my own opinions or basically maybe question my opinion Well, I have to go back and watch a guy. So that's what happens during the season. And again, that's constant. During the season, you actually, I, you know, I really don't watch a whole lot of film you know, through the first couple of months because there's not a whole lot of film to watch because, you know, you're, you're talking about the 2016 season. I've already rewatched the 2015 season. Yeah. You've got to have some sort of foundation of two months of game film. So usually at that point, I'm starting to concentrate on the smaller school guys, the non-Division I guys, the non-BCS guys, because when you watch James Madison, you're not watching, you know, you're watching maybe one or two guys as opposed to when you're watching Ohio State, you could be watching 15 guys. Sure. So it's easier to do it that way, to pick and choose. And then, you know, once you move into November, I'll start to move into the Division I-1A conferences, the MACs, uh, the American Athletic Conference, to, to watch those teams. So that takes you up until the, the postseason. And we get through bowl season, and now it's time for – one of our favorite times of year, we, we descend upon St. Petersburg, Florida, and we go to the East-West Shrine game. The week after that, we go to the Senior Bowl. Take me through your first trips to both of those games. We'll start with the Senior Bowl because yeah. you've been going to the Senior Bowl for a longer period of time. Yeah. What was it like the first time you went down to Mobile? It was exciting. It was anxious. What happened was is at the time I had a friend of mine who was working as an agent for me. Still, He's still a very good friend of mine. He actually went into politics. He was... Uh, uh, leader of the uh, Florida State House for a while, and you know he was you know making contact, getting interest. Place I started with a place called Rivals.com, which is now Scout, which is became Scout.com. So I said, well, I had to stay ahead of the curve. So we talked about the Senior Bowl. It's like, well, why don't you go to the Senior Bowl? 
Why don't you go to the practices? Because at that time, the game used to be on TBS, then the game was on ESPN. There was no coverage of the practice, except for you, literally a week or two later, Pro Football Weekly, the newspaper, which no longer exists, would have a write-up of what happened at practice. So, again, this is, this is the year 2000. This is as the Internet's really starting to you know, make a turn, and everyone has the Internet, and everyone relies on the Internet. And we talked, about, wouldn't it be great if I could go to the senior ball and report live from practice? So my buddy made a few phone calls. I was surprised I got a pass to go to the senior bowl, go to senior bowl practices. Never forget it. Flew into uh, New Orleans on a uh, Saturday night for whatever reason. I drove over to Mobile, and here's big, beautiful Mobile, all three buildings of it. Yep. Uh, go to the registration. There was a woman there named Jane Verville, who's still there. I see her every year. Checked me in. She's like, did you bring your golf clubs? I'm no, I'm here to watch football. You know, And it was basically... It was all NFL teams, all NFL scouts. There were no media people there. I was the only guy. Uh, you know, I, they, at that time, it was a lot smaller. It wasn't the media event it is now. They had a reception. It, it was nice. I got to know people, introduced myself. And then we had the practice. Well, actually, Monday morning was the weigh-ins, as it still is now, although it's Tuesday morning. And the weigh-in now, as people probably see it on TV or, or they hear us talk about it, I mean, it's basically in a big conference room where they have bleachers set up. Not back then. It was in one small room where they had movable chairs. The players would come up, and, you know, they, they would basically do the same height and weight. They wouldn't do hand or, or arm measurements. Uh, they did, but they did not announce them or hand them out the way they do now. Uh, back then, the practices were not held at Lad People Stadium. There were split practices between Fairhope, and, and what was called USM Wright. And so you always had to make that trip to Fairhope. Every day. Every day. Sometimes for morning practices, okay. sometimes for afternoon practices. And that, for you know, those who are listening, you know, it's a long trip, especially in the afternoon because there's a lot of traffic and, and traffic lights. So every day. And I was by myself. I mean, I wasn't working with anybody. I was by myself. Um, and what happened was, is, I, I mean, I, I was basically on the field of practice. And I would come back. I had started working just about that time for Rivals.com. I had my own, the own, my own dinky you know, TFY draft site, which is still around today, still dinky. But I would basically go back and post my notes on the message board at TFY Draft Preview. And people, uh, people were just shocked because it was, it was new. It was brand new. No one ever had done anything like that. Um, and I'll never forget what happened was I was going down the escalator at the, what is the, the Riverview Hotel, which was the Players Hotel, and I see a Chicago Bear scout <clears throat> speaking with a, a running back from Arkansas, Chico, Chiki, I can't remember his name, last name begins with an A. I was like, oh, this is interesting. So I posted, you know, the Chicago Bears were talking extensively with running back so-and-so from Arkansas, not thinking about it. It was like I had given out the lottery numbers an hour before the lottery was going to be drawn. That's the way people were, drew, were drawn to it. And I think the guy eventually went in the fourth round. He didn't go to the Bears, but people were like, wow. And I just kept posting. You know, I saw this team speaking with that team. And, you know, you can say whatever its value is in the end result of the draft, but people like to read that stuff. Sure. So I was basically, you know, and that was, that was an interesting uh, senior ball because that was Chad Pennington's senior ball, and that was also Chris Redmond's senior ball. People who remember that far back, I mean, that was the big quarterback tussle. Pennington just destroyed Redmond, the senior ball, moved ahead, moved way ahead in the, in the uh, rankings at that time. Pennington went in the first round. I think Redmond went in the third or fourth round. Uh, Pennington was a starter for a while. Redmond did nothing. So that yeah. was really the first senior ball in 2000. It was a lot of fun. It was interesting. I met scouts. You know, they were, they were, they were very nice, but when they found out what I did, they don't want to talk to me anymore, uh, although they do now kind of behind closed doors. 
but it was a way to kind of get ahead of the curve and do something that no one had ever done. So how, I mean, obviously it's worlds different now to what it was then. I mean, then, like you said, I mean, it was you and, and pretty much nobody else down there covering it from a media standpoint. Now you could probably make the argument that it's more media down there than it is coaches and scouts and decision makers. How different is it now for, for you from an evaluation perspective? Well, for me, for an evaluation perspective, it isn't because I still go to the practices. I still look for certain things. I still want to see guys compete. You know, I, I know going in, say, like this year, we go to this year's senior ball. I know that Jason Spriggs, one of the more athletic tackles, is one of the best pass protectors in this year's draft at the offensive tackle position. But the big question mark about him is his run blocking. Well, he did very well. well he did very good run blocking. So it, it's not any different in, in, that, in that sense. What is different is, as you mentioned, there's probably more media people there now than yeah. there are scouts and coaches. I remember back 2000, 2001, 2002 when actually I got our friend Adam Kaplan and said, you've got to come down to the senior bowl with me to get, you know, get him in, into the game. Do you think Adam would admit that you, that oh, you were the one to, he, to he get has. him to go down? He okay. has. Uh, but I remember Wednesday was the big practice. Wednesday was the day to be there. Yep. A- a- and you, they would basically be around the field, again, not at the uh, stadium. It was at USM Wright, a, a private school, and, and Fairhope. I mean, there would be people four or five deep, you know, standing on the sidelines watching these practices. And you used to hear a lot of chatter. I mean, I remember walking past Dave Wanstead and Dave Wanstead saying, you know, I don't know if Ricky Williams is the answer, but we're going to trade for him. And sure enough, they made that big trade. (laughs) And, and you know, you just got to keep your your ears to the ground. I mean, you would hear stuff like that. It's not like that anymore. I mean, really, Thursday is the last day of practice now, and it's, it's half empty. It's more yeah. media people. So it's different. I think in part because now the practices are taped. You can get them digi- uh, digitally. You know, they send the, some scouts down there. I think the, the bigger value for the teams is not just the practices, but interviewing the players. Yeah. Okay, because a lot of these guys uh, we'll probably get into later on. You don't see a lot of these senior guys making a lot of trips out to facilities because a lot of these senior guys were interviewed by teams at the Senior Bowl as well as at the Combine. But basically, as you said, it's become more of a media event now. It is still a major scouting event, but from being there in Mobile, it's as much media as it is NFL scouts. So now take us to the Combine because obviously that's a – a scenario where not a lot of people have access to, not even now, but back then, no one had yeah. access to it. Uh, what was your first combine like? And tell us the story, because this is, this is really great stuff, about how you yeah. got into places that no one had ever been in before. Yeah, well, back then and now, uh, what, what happened was this, is my first senior bowl was 2000. I go to my second senior bowl, which was 2001, and now all of a sudden all these draft guys are there. I'm not the only one. I'm like one of many there. And I'm saying to myself, okay, what am I going to do now? I have to raise the bar. So I said, well, why don't I go to the combine? Let's see what that's like. And as you said, I mean, the combine in 2001, really through 2001, 2002, 2003, was like a KGB event. If anyone knows what I mean, the K, you could not get into it. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I had some friends with the Miami Dolphins who I was working with. No, you can't get in, but you can do this, this, and that. You go to the Shulas, which was the big place, Shulas Bar at night. You talk to the scouts. All right, fine. I, I had no idea what the schedule was. This is, uh, this is late February 2001. I had no idea what the schedule was like. I hopped on a plane at Westchester Airport, changed through Pittsburgh. I, I arrived in Indianapolis. I took, uh, I don't even know if I took a cab or how I got downtown Indianapolis. I stayed in some flea bag hotel. 
And I said, all right, I got to I gotta make my way uh, to, uh, at the time, it was the RCA Dome. Yeah. See what's going on. You sure. know, scout, scout out the situation. Uh, funny story. I know you're going to laugh at this, although people at home won't know too much about it. I was, I was starving. I asked somebody where to eat. And he pointed me to now, the now famous La Peeps restaurant, which I know all the Philadelphia Eagle guys go to every morning. Well, that's what, so like Eagles, for if you if you listen to this podcast or if you listen to the Journey to the Draft podcast uh, with myself and Chris McPherson, when we're out at the combine, we eat breakfast at La Peeps pretty much every day, and it's completely out of the way to where we have to go to go to the stadium. It's it's like five blocks the other way. It'll be minus 27 degrees outside. C-Mac and I are buttoning up the coats and, and putting our hats over our faces and, and walking the other direction towards the Peeps. Well, what happened was I had gotten there late morning, and the Peeps was the only place that had pancakes, and I, I have to <laughs> eat food in order. So I, I went there, and I'll never forget it. I'm walking down towards the RCA Dome, and I see Jay Glazer. It was cold. It was, it was drizzly rain. And I think Glazer, who kind of, like, just blew me off in the past, like, hey, maybe this guy, Pauline, he may be a little bit crazy, but he's kind of serious. So what happened was I got to the RCA Dome. Now, little known fact about me is I went through college on a track and field scholarship. I actually trained for the Olympics for 10 years in the decathlon. Believe it or not, back in the day, my hero was Bruce Jenner. Uh, now, why, why do I tell you this? Because what happened is my college track coach was in charge of the United States Track and Field Association, which had its offices in the RCA Dome. Now, did you know that before you went down there? Uh, before, I, I knew that there? they had the offices there. I was not sure that he was going to be there. Okay. So I walked in, and this had to be, I mean, because that day, I, I mean, the workouts didn't start until like a Thursday or a Friday. I walk in, all the niceties, blah, 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 blah. He asked me, you know, what team are you with? I, I tell him what I'm doing. It does, didn't help the fact that I had this big white T-shirt that said TFY Draft Preview. I was like <laughs> a walking billboard. So I was like, all right, come here tomorrow. I, you can get in through this way. And he, and he let me in through, uh, through the back way. So... 2001, I'll never forget it. I mean, what's the most important thing you need in a, uh, a, at a combine? It's a stopwatch. I don't have a stopwatch. I got one of those running watches that got a stopwatch on it. Uh, Ennis Davis, I, I got there, and I, I got into the combine. This was, again, February 2001, and I'm watching what's going on. And literally, my heart is beating out of my chest because I know I'm not really supposed to be there. And I said, somebody's going to say, what's that noise? And they're going to point to me and say, that dude's heart is beating out of his chest because it was so loud, and they're going to basically arrest me. Never happened. Never happened. I mean, I, w- I went to the combine that way, you know, year after year after year, you know, getting in at 4.30 in the morning. Coach would let me in. I'd be sitting in stairwells. I'd be waiting around. I mean, I got to know a, a lot of people. I sat, uh, believe it or not, I sat behind Tom Odrak, uh for years and years and years, uh, you know, former the Eagles R- general manager, right? Um, uh, for years and years and years at the combine, I became friends with Charlie Army, who the former uh, general manager of the St. Louis Rams. We used to sit up in the press box, you know, and I'd be sitting there like I was one of the guys. You know, Charlie Army would be bringing me food from the, uh, uh, you know, from the the lunch area that they had for the combine, and I would just watch combine after combine after combine. I never bothered anybody. I had no intention of bothering anybody. You know, getting stealing anybody's information. I just wanted to watch the workouts. I wanted to watch the forties. I wanted to see how the guys did in position drills. And basically, I did that for the better part of I'd say twelve, fourteen years. Wow! So it wasn't on TV back then. It was. I think the first time it was on TV was in the mid two thousands. I don't know it was okay. two thousand five, two thousand six. Sounds about right. You know, and, and let, let's go back a second. The first combine I went to in two thousand one, there was no media center. I mean, yeah. the media center was John Clinton. 
and Chris Mortensen right. standing outside the exit of the workouts, and the exit was the, was a dividing curtain, so you couldn't look in, waiting for scouts, waiting for coaches to come. They didn't care about the players. They wanted to talk to the coaches and general managers, and, and that's what they did. And they, they would stand there with their pens and pads and, and with their microphones and wait for the uh, coaches and the general managers to come out to talk to them about you know, pending free agency, what guys look good. And then everybody would meet at Shula's Bar at night and, you know, they would exchange, get stories as to who, who did well. There was no media center. It was only a year or two after that, probably about 2002, 2003, when they opened the first media center at the RCA Dome. That's about the same time I said to Adam, listen, you got to come to the combine. Adam Kaplan, you got to come to the combine with me. And they opened the, uh, the media center in the RCA Dome. And even then, I, I mean, it wasn't the... 1,200 people or whatever you had this year. I mean, it was maybe three or four dozen reporters sure, there yeah. who, who were at the Combine. Uh, and back in those days at the RCA Dome, it was great because what would happen is, is everyone would congregate around the media center. You'd have the players who would come out and talk. You know, they, they'd filter in. Some of them would hang out, the coaches, some of the scouts. you have a lot of agents. So there was a lot of scoop, a lot of things going on in this one little confined area. Now it's, at the, now it's at Lucas Oil Stadium, and I think it's much more sanitized. The league brings in who they want to bring in for as long as they want to bring them in. You don't have the same access to people, so it was a lot more fun back then. So let me ask you this question, and this, is, this is, I think, is something that fans are, are very interested to hear. Being an insider, and whether you're covering the NFL draft like you do as well as anybody, or if you're you know, Adam Schefter, Adam Kaplan, Ian Rappaport, Albert Breer, and you're covering the league on a, on a year-round basis. How hard is it to decipher the info? Because obviously you have so much information coming at you all year round, week in, week out, 24-7. How hard is it yeah. to decipher what's true, what's not, what you can run with, what you can't? Yeah. How, do you, how, do you, how hard is it to, to kind of trust what you're hearing and then feel comfortable putting your name on it? Yeah, it's an excellent question. It really is. And I think it depends on, on who you are and where you're getting the information from. Now, let, let's just backtrack. Why do I get good information? I feel I get good information because I give good information. Mm-hmm. It's not, I'm just not taking information. I go back to you know, watching film during the summer. So I have a lot of people, scouts, general area scouts. I've got agents who rely on me just for opinions. They may not agree with my opinions, but they say, what do you think of this player? How do you rank this player? So in return, I get information from them. Now, to answer your question, you, obviously everyone has their sources that they can rely on. And you know if the sources are good. And, I mean, there's stories now that I know that, uh, that I'm receiving from even very solid sources that, that are going to affect the draft in a week and a half that I have to double-check on because you don't want to, you know, put it out there. You, you don't want to be wrong, although I have been wrong in the past. You basically, you have to trust your sources. If you don't trust your source, then you've got to basically, you know, double-check and even triple-check the story. For a perfect example, I mean, I had broken the story, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Late last week that the Jets put a substantial offer uh, to the Tennessee Titans for that first pick, and the Jets were very close. A lot of people said they didn't believe me. You know, I, I trusted my source, and now all of a sudden you hear people like Jason Cole, formerly of Yahoo, a Bleacher Report. Well, now more and more people saying, well, yeah, the Jets did try and make the trade up to get that first pick, and they're going to continue to look up to get to the second pick to get a quarterback. So you have to trust your source. You know, and I get all kinds of stuff sent to me, and sometimes I'll just reply, thanks, and I will forget about it. So then the, the question then becomes, how hard is it for you while you're evaluating, and you evaluate these players and you're watching uh, football all year long, 
to separate your feelings about a player from what you're hearing. So you're hearing, oh, this guy's going to go first round, first round, first round, and you're watching, and you're like, there's no, I've been watching yeah. this now for, for 20 years. There's yeah. no way this guy's going round one. How hard is that for you? You have to be able, you have to trust your instincts, and you make another great point because the biggest mistakes I've made is when I've watched a guy for a year, two years, three years, and said, this is where he is. He is not a top 45 pick. You know, uh, we, we can use some examples. I'm sure we'll get into later on. And all of a sudden, you hear all this love. Perfect example. A couple of years ago, they were talking about Sharif Floyd. Okay. Was that's, a, that's a really good example. Sharif Floyd. And when I watched the film, Sheldon Richardson was head and shoulders above Sharif Floyd on film. I mean, Sheldon Richardson was impacting games on the, on the line of scrimmage. He was making special teams play. And I just said, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Sharif Floyd is better than Sheldon Richardson. Big mistake. Big mistake. I mean, you have to trust what you see on film. Granted, there may be some variables, some things in the background you don't know. Medical exams, you may not get the full, uh, the full breadth of the information on. The character issues, you try and get it on. But you have to trust what you see on film. The biggest mistakes I've made is when I question myself because, not that I'm right every time because I'm not, but I see something on film. Sheldon Richardson, there's no way, you know, how is Sharif Floyd... Uh, a better, a higher rated player than, than Sheldon Richardson. Everyone else is saying it. I must be wrong, but no, you end up being right. The, the last question I have for you, Tony, is in those scenarios, let's take a guy like Vontez Perfect. Okay, so coming into his final season at Arizona, or Arizona State, Vontez Perfect was seen as an all-world linebacker. He was you know, first-team All-American. He was a, uh, a can't-miss top-20 pick. Obviously has a poor senior or a poor final season. I forget if he was a senior or junior, whatever it was. That final season there at Arizona State was a poor season. There were the character issues or all kinds of things. And he ended up going undrafted. Ends up having a fine career so far. How does he make that? Is it just the tape? Is it just the character? Was he ever considered that high? How when guy when you see players fall so far, is it mainly because of the player or did, was it? Do you think it was kind of? Uh, you know, he was a little bit too high to start. You know, how, how is it? They, obviously, all these cases are different. But right, that's an and, and that's the unknown uh, variable. You have to remember, Vontez Perfect wasn't that bad the last year he played at Arizona State. The problem was is he was constantly having unsportsmanlike penalty uh, uh, penalties thrown against him. I think yeah. it was uh, uh, I think it was in the double digits that last year he played. Then he went. Uh, he, he entered the draft. He went into pre-combine training, and I remember reporting that the guy wasn't showing up for training. Right. He was, you know, he was just basically he was driving around a brand new car. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. He goes to the combine. If you look at his combine number, I think he ran a there was, five there was flat awful. Yeah. at the combine. And I also believe he failed the marijuana test. He failed the drug test at the combine. So you know, it, it's sort of like Vontez Perfect, Ryan Leaf. These guys have, are great football players. But if the light doesn't go on between the ears, if they are basically great players on the field, but immature children off the field, you know, does the light eventually go on? I mean, Burfecht can be a very good player, but you still see a lot of that immaturity sure. on the field. And, you know, it's, it's a matter of, I understand why Burfecht fell. There's no reason, I mean, if oh, no Burfecht had taken, been taken in the second or third round, more eyebrows would have been raised than, you know, than the fact that he fell as far as he did. But it's just a matter of you're talking about more personality traits, more maturity issues, you know, and that's a big, you know, that's, that's the unknown variable 
the draft. That's why it's an inexact science. Well, Tony, it is, it is draft week. I greatly appreciate the time uh, you joining us here, and you did such a great job with all of your coverage throughout draft season here on PhiladelphiaEagles.com. Tony Pauline, again, you can follow him on Twitter, at Tony Pauline. I appreciate the time once again here on the Eagle Eye and Sky podcast. Always a pleasure, Fran. Great stuff from Tony. And again, you can follow him on Twitter just like I do, at Tony Pauline. And while you're at it, I'm at FDuffy3. That's where I post all of the podcasts I'm a part of and all of our X's and O's content that I can produce here at PhiladelphiaEagles.com. And you know, I really appreciate everybody that promotes the podcast on social media. We've got a little bit more to get into, but real quick, I'm glad again that Tony joined us because, you know, one of the things I really wanted you guys to take away from it was the flow of information during this whole process. You know, how often over the last couple months have we heard about stocks rising and falling and who's hot and who's not in terms of draft prospects? And with all this happening, without games actually being played, you get an idea hearing from Tony about how this whole process unfolds and how the agents are involved and how scouts and GMs are all part of the process. You start to see, okay, look, they they talk to these insiders, and that's a big thing. Keep in mind, there's a big difference between – insiders who are relying on their ears and analysts who are who are relying on their eyes you know you have guys like Greg Cosell he really he wants to go by the tape go by what he watches he watch former uh you know personnel men that are in the media now a guy like Bill Polian or Lou Riddick for with ESPN uh you know you see all these guys across the country analysts that were in the game that trust their eyes and want to go off their own evaluations and then also the insider's perspective, you talk about a guy like Tony, you talk about a guy like Adam Kaplan, people we trust that we get information from continually, Ian Rappaport, Adam Schefter, uh, different people like that, those are the insiders. So information flows from the, from the teams to these insiders, agents flow information to the insiders, they pick through what sounds right to them, sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not, and they shoot it out to us, and it's up to us to kind of pick through. And it's a really, really interesting process. I'm glad Tony was able to to join us and shed some light on it. We could have talked for even longer, but uh, really appreciate him coming on the podcast. But uh, I talked earlier. We had Tony to talk about the draft process this year. If you follow the show, you know how big of a fan I was of Jordan Hicks last year, and I caught up with Jordan last week to talk about the Green Dog Blitz. Let's get to that conversation now in two technique time to get inside the mind of a player it's time for two technique here now with eagles linebacker jordan hicks and jordan you are actually the very first player to appear on the eagle eye in the sky podcast for a third time we talked to you very early in the 2015 season about how to defend the screen pass and we talked to you towards the end of the season about defending perimeter runs now today i want to ask you about the art of the green dog blitz and a lot of fans aren't really necessarily aware of what a green dog is they see a delayed blitz and that's what a lot of analysts will refer to it as on tv explain to us about the green dog what is it obviously it has something to do with the relationship between a running back and a linebacker and man coverage, how early that running back is going to release. And then, you know, if he does stay in the block, what, what happens there? What's going through your mind? At that point, you have two options. You have the option to sit back and stay in coverage, or you have the option to green dog, which is add on to the rush and become a second-level contain um, blitzer. And really, you know, you see a lot of guys getting a lot of sacks off of this. Um, you know, if, if coverage holds up, and the quarterback holds the ball, you're that second, that second delayed blitzer um, really just, just coming to, to, to get you a sack. 
I always find it interesting, too, when I'm watching film and you, you kind of see that dance between the back and the linebacker because, you know, sometimes the back has said, hey, I'm going to stay in, and if there's pressure, then I'll release. How do you almost say, okay, if, if, how do you tell if he's going to release or do you just go? I mean, at what point do you say, i got to beat him to the punch and I'm just going to go before he releases? Yeah, it really is a game, um, and it's a lot of film study. It's a lot of, uh, you know, coming off to the sideline and making those type of adjustments. And, um, but, but, you know, it's, it, going into it, you have, to, you have to know your opponent. And, um, you know, I think I've gotten caught a couple times playing that dance and, and, you know, the running back's trying to figure out what you're doing and you're trying to figure out what, what the running back's going to do. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a technique that you learn and, and you get better at, obviously, like any other type of technique. So, yeah. All right, well, Jordan, appreciate it very much and uh, look forward to seeing you out there on the field. That was some outstanding stuff there from Jordan. He did a great job of breaking down the Green Dog Blitz, so I'm going to quickly break down how to subscribe to a podcast. And if you've been listening to this show, you should know this by now. All you have to do is you're listening to this on the Eagles app or the Eagles website. Just go to your smartphone, go to your mobile tablet, anywhere where you can find a podcast app, Search Eagle Eye in the Sky, you hit subscribe, and this show will download automatically to your device each and every week, and you can listen whenever and wherever you want. You can listen in your car, you can listen at work, when you're mowing your lawn, when you're folding your laundry like BT does, when you're on your 90-minute commute like Miss Melissa Kelly does, who is also in the studio today. You can listen to all those podcasts. We have the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by AAA, the Eagles Live podcast with Dave Spadaro. There's so much great podcast content out there, and it's right at your fingertips. All you have to do is hit subscribe. So, uh, and if also, I should mention, if you have a chance, go on onto those podcast apps and rate the show. Give us a little rating. Leave us a comment. Let us know how we can improve and make the show better each and every week. But let's wrap this show up like we do each and every week. Let's talk some scouting here in Saturday Scouting. It's time for Saturday Scouting. All right, so this week on Saturday Scouting, I wanted to take a look at Kenyon Barner, the running back from the Philadelphia Eagles. Obviously, he was not drafted by the Eagles. He was drafted by the Carolina Panthers back in 2013. And I wanted to take a look. He's look. He's getting a lot of buzz right now. You listen to Dave Spadaro. He's been at some of these workouts and has seen some of these guys, how they look this offseason. And he's talked about Barner and how rocked up he's looked and how he's put on some, some good weight and how he, lo- he really, really looks the part of an NFL running back. So I figured, all right, let me, let me take this chance. I'll, take, I'll look back and look at Kenyon Barner coming out of Oregon. So here are my notes on him. Five, nine and a quarter, 196 pounds, played in Chip Kelly's spread rushing attack at Oregon, lining up primarily in the shotgun, and he had little to no experience running with a lead back. As far as the positives, he displayed a good feel for the Ducks' zone run scheme. When he saw the hole, he hit it hard, and he was very decisive downhill. He displayed good vision as a ball carrier. A good athlete for the running back position that displayed the quickness, lateral agility, and short area burst to excel in space at the next level. Barner has good, not great speed in the open field, and he can pull away from defenders in open space. His athletic ability helps him not only in space, but also in a phone booth where he showed the, the wiggle to make defenders miss and pick up extra yardage. A weapon out of the backfield that can make an impact as a receiver and as a natural catcher of the football. He's a willing blocker but does need to improve, though I did think that he showed potential during his week of practice at the Senior Bowl. Barner also presents special teams value as both a kick returner and a punt returner. We have seen that over the course of his career, especially in the preseason, as he's continued to see extensive reps. We see some of that talent flash through. 
Obviously, he was not a perfect prospect. He was a sixth-round pick, I believe, to the Carolina Panthers coming out in 2013. So what were some of the negatives? Well, when I watched him at Oregon, I saw some ball security issues, and I wrote that he would need to do a much better job protecting the football to earn more reps in the NFL. There's also very little power element to his game. I'd like to see him get stronger. I thought he was more of a perimeter runner. I'd like to see him improve a little bit more inside between the tackles of picking up extra contact. And I thought that his lack of power was magnified by his high pad level when carrying the football, exposing his body to big shots too often going down on first contact. And if you could just imagine a ball carrier, and I talk about pad level with running backs all the time, you don't really hear that as much. And why, why is that the case? Because you want your running back, let's say you're, uh, you're Derrick Henry and you're six two and a half. You don't want to run like you're six two and a half. Uh, in terms of standing straight up. You want to get down in an athletic stance. Your knees are bent. You have a low center of gravity so you can withstand contact. You can run through initial contact, pick up extra yardage. You think of a guy like Darren Sproles on the Eagles, you know, who's obviously an undersized back, but he doesn't play even to his height. He plays even smaller because he is always down in an athletic stance, knees bent, and is able to withstand contact. That's why he's able to withstand tackles from guys that are you know, 20, 30 pounds bigger than him uh, and able to pick up extra yardage. So that was an issue for Kenyon Barner coming out of Oregon. But overall, I wrote, Barner was productive as a lead back in Chip Kelly's system at Oregon, but he doesn't project as a feature ball carrier in the NFL. That being said, he certainly brings value as a number three or even as a number two option out of the backfield, both as a receiver and as a returner. He will stick in the NFL. So, you know, look, he's in a rotation right now. You've got Ryan Matthews. You've got Darren Sproles. You've got Barner. They have a couple young guys in Kevin Monongai and Ross Schuerman. For sure, Barner is in the mix right now. Uh, we'll see what happens after the draft and after the, that second wave of free agency in June if there are any other additions to this backfield. But I would expect that Barner is going to be a key contributor, especially if he, he has put in the work this offseason to improve his body and really put, put himself in a position to be a factor in this offense. So thanks again to Tony Pauline, to Jordan Hicks, and all of you out there listening, whether you're on iTunes, on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, and, of course, on PhiladelphiaEagles.com and the Eagles mobile app. Thank you, and if you get the time, go on, rate the show, leave us a comment, and let us know what you think. Again, shoot me a question. I want to hear from everybody out there and make everyone happy. So wherever you listen, just go shoot us a comment, and we can keep making this show better each and every week. All that being said, I think that'll do it. Another show in the books here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. For my producer, BT, I'm Fran Duffy. We will talk to you next week.